Good morning. So good to have you here this morning. Uh, I just have two announcements before we get into the sermon that I want to make sure to uh, keep your attention on. The first is, um, in two weeks, on March 22nd, after almost 18 months of searching, we are bringing in a candidate to candidate for our youth pastor position. So his picture, I think, is behind me with his wife, Becca. And uh, at this point, he's visited our church three times. Maybe some of you have even seen. The first was just to check us out. The second, he came, met with our search committee. And by this time, he's met with all of our elders and uh, search committee and their spouses and our lead, elected leaders. And so we're really excited about this. This search has gone 18 months. We never expected it to take this long, but we're really excited to introduce to you Eliel and his wife, Becca. That's in two weeks. On March 22nd, the schedule is as follows. Uh, Sunday morning, there'll be a 10, 10, 15-minute spot where we're going to introduce him to the congregation and kind of give him a chance um, to share his testimony, to share uh, his calling to ministry. And then after church, we're going to have a big dinner, a big lunch. I think we'll do cookies and chips and subs, so in water, healthy stuff, you know. Um, Yeah, so anyway, uh, anyway, that's a joke, but although... Never mind. Um, So, and then at at night, he's going to lead the youth ministry. If you're a parent with teens, there's going to be at 5.30 uh, to 6, there's just going to be a chance for parents to get to know Eliel for a bit there and to hang out and sit. Youth group starts at 6 o'clock. He'll hang out a little bit afterwards, too, if anybody would like to connect with him. So we're really excited to introduce him, and we're really excited about the the future that he he represents uh, as far as moving our our ministry forward in youth ministry. Um, the second announcement I have is that we are in our Lenten series, but that means we are marching towards Easter. And Easter in our church is the time of year that we traditionally do baptisms. Uh, I, I'm going to talk about this almost every week as we approach Easter. If you are interested in baptism, I would love to make a time to meet with you and talk about that. Uh, me meeting with you about baptism does not force you to be baptized. It's not like a timeshare pitch, but I would love to have the chance to talk to you about what baptism is. And baptism really does two things in the life of the individual being baptized. And they're really declarations. One is a declaration that you make and one is a declaration over you. And both are very powerful. When you are baptized, the first is a declaration over you. And perhaps some of you will remember the story when Jesus was baptized himself. Before he had done anything, he goes into the waters of the Jordan and is baptized by John the Baptist. And a voice from heaven comes down, uh, speaks from the clouds and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So one of the things that happens at baptism is that you are declared a beloved child of God at baptism. You are declared a beloved child of God. And that new identity that baptism represents allows you to walk forward in a different way than if you did not believe that. That is a powerful, powerful declaration that you are a beloved child of God. And in fact, that declaration doesn't just happen by God or by the pastor. It's kind of part of church itself, that as we attend church and as we get to know each other and as we go into community with one another, um, they get to know you, both the good and the bad stuff, and yet you can still sit next to me the next week anyway. Does that make sense? Even though we know you, we know the good and the bad, you're still welcome here. That is all about grace, undeserved favor, yes? Uh, And we all are desperate for that. The second dynamic is that baptism is a public declaration of the individual, that I have placed my faith in Jesus and I intend to follow him with my life, both in the way I believe and the way I behave. 
And so if you would like to sit down and have a discussion about baptism, it does not force you to be baptized, but I would love to have that kind of discussion with you. My email is bill at lifespringcc.com. You can get it on our website, or you can just come and see me after church today, or you can fill out one of the cards, check baptism, and hand it to anybody in a blue shirt out in the lobby. But I would love to have that discussion with you. This morning, we continue in our five-week Lenten series. We're in week two, and during the course of this series... We are looking at the proclivity of humankind to move towards evil. So it's not necessarily the most upbeat type of series, but we are looking at the proclivity of humankind, the tendency of humankind to move towards evil. Last week we started, and we're doing all of our sermons in this series within the first couple couple chapters, the first 11 chapters of the very first book of the Bible, the book Genesis, which simply means beginnings. The book of Genesis tells us of the origin stories of the human race. It tells us uh, stories of who we are, and it gives us identification. And some of this stuff is a little ugly, which is why we're looking at it during this time of year. We are seeing throughout this series the ugliness of humanity, and we are contrasting it with the love of God shown to us through Jesus. So every single series, we're seeing something that the Bible is teaching us about ourselves, apart from God, what our proclivity is. And we're seeing something every single week about who Jesus is and how he restores humanity. So who we are and who Jesus, how humanity has been restored through Jesus. Last week, we looked at the story of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. And we looked at how humanity had a proclivity towards disbelief, even when God had done nothing to show himself to not be believable. This morning, we are going to look at (laughs) hate. Hate, which is not an encouraging word, right? Not an exciting thing to look at. But we are going to look at humanity's proclivity towards hate, towards anger, and towards jealousy. To do so, we're going to look at one of the very first stories in the Bible. It it is the story of the very first murder in human history. It's found in Genesis chapter 4. And uh, if you're using one of our Bibles that we provide that are right in front of you, it's on page 3. Page 3. The story of Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve were the first uh, husband and wife. And Cain and Abel are two of their sons. Cain is the firstborn. Abel is the secondborn. And Cain and Abel take sibling rivalry to a whole new level, and we're about to read the story. It's a well-known story in the Bible. If you've never heard it before, you you have a treat this morning, an ugly treat, um, a sick treat, yeah? And you're going to see that although humanity is hurt, that God always reaches out to us anyway. Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. to Cain, yep. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, He did not look with favor. And so, Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face downcast? For if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? 
But if you do not do what is right, then sin is crouching at your door, for it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And so Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and he killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother? And Cain replied, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done for listen? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the very ground. And so now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you and you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And so Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. For today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so, for anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And so the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. But Cain went out from the Lord's presence and he lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. All right, so this text tells us two things. It tells us explicitly one thing about humanity. And it tells us a second thing. It leads our minds to question and and delve further to find out something else about uh, how humanity can be restored. So humanity revealed, humanity restored. Let's start with humanity revealed. The first thing this text shows us is that humanity chose to hate when we didn't feel God's favor. That humanity moved towards hate when they did not feel the favor of God. I really thought about this point a lot this week because I don't think anyone listening to me this morning immediately thinks, yeah, when I hate, it's because God doesn't look with favor on me, right? It doesn't naturally occur to us that way. And yet I think so much of hate has to do with Favor and anger, right? So much of hate has to do with the fact that we do not feel like we've gotten a fair shake and somebody else has gotten a better shake than us. So much of hate is born of jealousy, a jealousy that leads to anger. And so it is with Cain. So it is with Cain. Cain brings his offering before the Lord, and so does his brother Abel. Cain brings an offering from the fruit of the ground. Abel brings an offering of animals. You know, he, he, he cared for animals. Cain cared for the ground. So the question now is, why does God look at fa- with favor at Abel's offering, but why does God not favor Cain's? Throughout history, the predominant view of why Cain's offering has not been accepted has gone something like this. Abel's offering was a blood sacrifice, but Cain's offering was not. It came from the fruit of the ground. But I don't think that's the way the text pictures this at all. I don't think God accepted Cain's offering or did not accept Cain's because of the nature of what he brought, where he accepted Abel's because it involved killing in blood, right? I think the text gives us a clue as to why Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's offering was not, was accepted. In verse 
3 and verse 4, it talks about the offerings that were brought. It says that Cain brought some of his offerings from the fruits of the soil. And then it said, but Abel also brought an offering. And he brought the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. You see, the difference between Cain's offering and Abel's offering was that Abel brought the best he had and gave to God first. And Cain just brought some stuff and gave it to God. That's at least the way the text seems to picture it. In other words, why is Cain's offering rejected while Abel's is accepted? The answer lies in this, because God cares more about our hearts than he does about our offerings. It has always been this way. God cares more about who you are than what you do. Does this make sense? He cares about, more about who you are than what you do. He cares more about your motivation in your heart than he does about the actual offering itself. And it has always been this way. It has always been this way. Sometimes I think we can start to believe that Jesus cares about this, but in the Old Testament, God was different apparently, and he didn't. But it is not true. All throughout the Old Testament, there are these glimmers that God, what he really is after is our hearts. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, I'm going to tell you a few stories. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel, uh, the prophet, has told Uh, has told the first king of Israel, his name was Saul, to go and to win a battle. And when he wins the battle, he says, don't keep any of the plunder for yourself. Don't keep any of their gold. Don't keep any of their animals. Just win the battle and liberate your people. Well, Saul, the first king of Israel, he keeps all of the plunder and he keeps their animals. And so as Samuel is coming to Saul after the battle, he comes up to Saul, and he says, what is this bleeding I hear and this mooing I hear in the background, you know? Moo and bah, you know, that's my best I can do. Um, What is this I hear? And uh, Saul said, well, I thought it'd be nice to give give God an offering, so I kept the animals. And so Samuel looks at Saul and says, God does not care about your offerings. He cares about your obedience and your heart. You were strictly told not to do this, and you've done it anyway. God does not need our offerings. He wants a proper heart, our motivation. He doesn't want it because he needs it. He wants it because it's best for you, even. In first, second, I'm sorry, in Second Chronicles chapter 30, this is a less known sto- lesser known story, but one of my very favorites, chapter 30, verses 15 through 20, one of the kings, Hezekiah of uh, Judah, has recently recovered a scroll, and he started to read the scroll, and he's realized that our people have not celebrated the Passover for many years. The Passover was a special holiday in which the Israelites would gather around to celebrate the deliverance of God earlier from slavery in Egypt. And so Hezekiah begins, he he tells his people what to do, and he begins the preparations for the Passover to celebrate Passover. But as he more carefully reads the Old Testament law and the instructions on how, how to celebrate Passover, he comes to quickly realize that the Old Testament, the law, gave certain amount of time was required to purify yourself to be ready for Passover. Purification rituals. And Hezekiah does the math in his mind and realizes the amount of time it takes to do these purification rituals, there's not enough time for us to be ready to celebrate Passover and do the purification rituals. 
And so Hezekiah simply says a prayer to God and says, God, I want, my heart is before you and belongs to you, and I want to celebrate Passover. Would you allow, purify our hearts and allow us to celebrate it even though we do not have time, right? To do the, the rituals. And God, of course, says, your hearts are clean before me and celebrate. He doesn't say, no, not, not this year. Good luck next year, right? Your hearts are right. Celebrate. David, one of the most famous kings of the Old Testament, he committed a grave sin. One evening, he, he saw a woman that was beautiful and he took her and he slept with her and then he had her husband killed. David, who is the most famous of all the kings of perhaps in all of Israel's history, Probably not even a perhaps, right? David, for a year or two, continues to live and doesn't feel the guilt of what he's done. And finally, one of the prophets, Nathaniel, comes to David and says, you have sinned. And the greatness of David, unlike Saul before him, who I just told you about, the greatness of David was not that he never made mistakes, not that he never sinned, but that when he did sin, he would confess it and repent. And so David goes before God and begs his forgiveness. And in Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17, he goes before God and says, after his sin with Bathsheba, he says this, God, you do not desire my offerings and sacrifices, but if you did, I would make them. But what you desire is a broken and contrite heart. Do you see? A broken and contrite heart. So why does God not favor Cain's offering? He doesn't favor Cain's offering, not because it's fruit and vegetables, right? That would be why I wouldn't have favored it, because I would prefer meat, yes? But that is not God's rationale. God does not favor his offering because Cain's heart was not in the right place. And everything that Cain does shows us that his heart is not in the right place. That Cain has given his heart over to hatred and anger and jealousy. Listen, there are five things Cain does. Listen to them and you'll see exactly what I mean. First, when Cain's offering is not accepted, Cain's first reaction in, verses, in verse 5 is to move towards anger and jealousy, Right? to move towards anger and jealousy. In other words, Cain thinks he's been unjustly treated because the quality of his produce was just as good as the quality in his mind of the animal, and yet God did not accept it, but God looks on our hearts. And Cain never softens his heart to even ask himself why or to ask himself, is there something wrong with me, right? He just becomes angry and jealous. I can remember... When I was at the end of my first year of Bible college, and I was, I was an unusual kid, I was like really awesome at Bible trivia, and I knew a lot about the Bible, and I'd gone to Bible college. I was even like a Bible quizzer. I, I'm just completely alienating my entire audience. I understand this. But I worked at this camp for, I think, three or four summers, and I'd finally worked my way up at the camp. And, you know, every camp, uh, the guys and girls side had what was called a head counselor and a head Bible teacher, you know? And it, was all, it had always been, in my experience, that the head Bible teacher and the head counselor were the one and the same person. So I was coming out of my first year of Bible college. I knew who else was coming, so I had weighed them all in my mind, you know, and I found myself to be the most fitting. And so um, I went to camp that summer, and I'm like, my time has come. 
you know? I'm the clear and obvious choice for head counselor and head Bible teacher. And the camp director at my camp made me the head Bible teacher. And he didn't make me the head counselor. Like when Anakin was named to the, Je- was, was named to the Jedi, or when, it, when he was named a Jedi Knight, but not on the council or something. There's something like that, isn't there? In Revenge of the Sith? I didn't plan that part. Anyway, um, <laughs> I was so angry for a week or two. And then I finally came to this conclusion, like, maybe I shouldn't be head counselor. Maybe I knew no more about the Bible than the other people. But maybe I shouldn't be head counselor because I've got a root of pride that's running through me that I need to work with, you know? Cain never has that. He doesn't go through a process where he gets angry for a little bit and becomes introspective. He doesn't become introspective, Cain. (laughs) He doesn't become introspective at all. He allows his heart to become blinded by hatred and anger and jealousy. Then Cain has the most wonderful thing happen to him. Something that I wish I would get more often, and you probably do too. God comes to Cain and audibly warns him when he sees that Cain in his mental thought process is moving in a bad direction. Do you see that? Verse 6 and 7. Cain mentally is moving in a direction where God can see that Cain is about to sin big time and to ruin his life. And God comes to Cain and warns him. But you know what else hate does in our lives? It blinds us. It blinds us to the warnings of God. And so even though God comes to Cain and says, I see the path you're going on, he says to him, Cain, this is is a voice of gentleness, not of condemnation. Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Verse 6 and 7, do you see that there? That is not a tone of condemnation, but a tone of gentleness saying, yes, you will. If you do what is right, you'll be accepted. Your offering wasn't rejected because it was fruits and vegetables. Your offering was rejected because of your heart. If you change your heart, will you not be accepted? The answer is yes. But then do you see what the text says? But if you do not do what is right, sin is is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You must conquer it. Sin, it desires you. It seeks to destroy you. And yet, and yet, so many of us are blinded by the warnings of God that may not come to us audibly, but we are blinded because of our hate, because of our jealousy, because of our anger. We are blinded to the warnings of God. I've seen this dynamic play out in my own life. I've seen it play out in the lives of others. When we are weak, when we are spiritually weak, we can almost feel the pull of things that we know will destroy us. And yet, if we don't have accountability and if we do not listen to the voice of God, we will will heed the voice that is pulling us to our destruction. We will heed it, which is exactly what Cain did. What could be more gracious? What could be more undeserving? What could be more kind? That when God sees Cain moving in a bad direction, he goes to Cain and says, it is coming for you. I've seen this happen in the lives of people where they come to me and they talk with me and they say they don't want to and you can hear it in their voice, you can see it in their eyes that they want to do the thing they don't want to do, you know? 
Sin is crouching at your door and its desire to have you, but hate will make you blind to the warnings of God. Next, third, hate causes us to deny responsibility. It's the most bizarre little scene. Cain does not heed the voice of God because he's blind. He goes into the field, he kills his brother, and God says to him, where is your brother? He has just killed him and his blood has seeped into the grounds and the fields to which he lured him out. This is not a crime of passion. This is a first degree murder, right? Premeditated. God says, where is your brother? And Cain says, I'm not my brother's keeper, (laughs) right? I'm not my brother's keeper. Causes us to deny responsibility. When God punishes Cain, which the punishment of God, I, I really think you could show this throughout the whole entirety of the Bible. The punishment of God is not designed to hurt us, but designed to soften our hearts and move us back towards God. And yet when God punishes Cain, Cain protests the punishment because hate causes us to think that we don't deserve our punishment. The person who has not given in to hate, if he has done something wrong, is brokenhearted by the wrong he has done. Brokenhearted. And believes they deserve their punishment. The person who has given in to hate, protest, thinking, well, if so-and-so wouldn't have done this, then I wouldn't have done that, Right? If so, if mom and dad, if you'd let me play video games, I never would have had the free time to break my kid, my son, my brother's toys and push them down and hurt them, right? To which every parent just thinks, you're right. If I would have let you play video games all day, you would never get in trouble and all good things would happen to you. Yes. Um, Hate causes us to protest punishment, to deny culpability, to think if it had been different, I would be different. And lastly, hate causes us to ignore the love of God. (laughs) For punishment is always his love. In verse 16 of chapter 4, you see, Cain leaves the presence of God. Yes, he's been told he has to go to a different place, but he does not have to leave God's presence. He (laughs) He could cry out to God, and who knows if Cain's behavior is different, if he's not accepted again. But Cain and his hate and his belief that he has been unfairly treated gives in and believes that God does not love him, that he has been unfairly treated, to be blind to the warnings of God, to give in to anger and to jealousy. And so, and so, we see the proclivity of humankind. We see our proclivity towards hate, We see our proclivity to moving towards that which would destroy us. How can we be restored? We see this through Jesus, and Jesus taught us a few things. But he showed us above all, as it pertains to recovering our hearts and restoring them, he showed us that Jesus cares more about our hearts than what you do. Jesus cares more about your hearts than what you do. The first step to having your heart restored and your humanity restored is to understanding that God cares far more about who you are than what you do. I gave you some Old Testament examples. Let me give you some examples that Jesus gave. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, Jesus tells us the story of two individuals, one a Pharisee 
who is a professional religious person, and one, a tax collector, who were the dregs of the first world society and Jewish culture. The Pharisee goes to the temple to pray and prays something like this, Dear God, thank you I'm not like the, the sinner, the tax collector over there. Thank you that I'm not like these other horrible people. Yes? Which isn't much of a prayer, is it? And the, the, the tax collector cries out to God and says, Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which is radical, right? Jesus says, the religious person, the Pharisee, God rejects. And the tax collector, who's got a sordid past, who have taken money when they shouldn't, but the tax collector who realizes his sin, he says, this person will go away justified before God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And another beautiful, beautiful story. A woman comes to Jesus. Now, it's in Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50. You don't have to turn there. But in another scene, a woman who had a uh, bad reputation around town, almost surely this was sexually promiscuous woman. This woman had come into contact with Jesus before the, the night that the Bible tells, and she had been forgiven of her sins. And so she found Jesus one night at the house of another Pharisee whose name was Simon. And when she comes into the house, the first thing that Simon thinks is, how dare this woman come into my house, right? And then the woman comes before Jesus, begins to cry tears of gratitude and joy and thank Jesus for forgiving her of her sins and giving her a new chance. Simon the Pharisee thinks to himself, how dare this woman touch this man and how dare Jesus allow this woman to touch him and Jesus turns to Simon and all this is going on in Simon's head we're told and Jesus knowing the heart turns to Simon and says you do not think this woman can be accepted by me but let me tell you a little story there was a man who owed $50 to somebody and there was a man who owed $50,000 to somebody to the same person right The man forgave both debts. Who do you think loved the man more? The one who was forgiven $50 or the one who was forgiven $50,000, right? And Simon the Pharisee, I mean, it's one of those trapping questions that you can't answer it any other way. But like Simon the Pharisee says, well, of course, the one who is forgiven more. But grudgingly, he says it. And Jesus says, you have spoken correctly. And that's why you have a hard time understanding my love. And this woman does not. And then he turns to the woman and says, go in peace. Go in peace. Go and be different. Go in peace. Because Jesus cares more about the heart than he does about what we do or who we are. Those two stories are both religious men, right? Religious men, vocational religious men. I think there is something about being in vocational religious ministry, which I find myself in, obviously, That is particularly dangerous. And in fact, James tells us as much. James, Jesus' brother in James chapter 3 tells you, tells us, do not seek to be a teacher too quickly for you are under a harsher judgment. And I think the harsher judgment has to do with those of us who teach people about the love of God. And that can be you guys too, as you share your faith. 
But those of us who teach about the love of God, we have a proclivity to think that we are more lovely because we are, our actions are better. And Jesus does not think so. God does not think so. He looks at us all and he says, you are loved. He looks at us all and says, you are loved. Now live out of the experience of the love of God. Live out of the experience of the love of God. How do we fix our hearts that move towards hate instead of love and humility? I think part of the answer is the knowledge that we can't completely fix them, right? That the fixing of our hearts is a humility that the Holy Spirit of God does in our lives in which he softens our hearts to see our sinfulness and to see our need for him, to see the grace of God, to understand that there is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor, but simply accepting his forgiveness. Every single religious person in this world that does not believe in Christianity or that does not live Christianity thinks something like this. God will accept me if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. That's the, that is the cornerstone backbone of every religious system on earth besides Christianity. God will accept me if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. But Christianity teaches something different. Jesus shows us a different way that we cannot fix ourselves but we simply fall on the grace of God where we say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Where we cry out to God, where we cry out to God, and we say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I believe in Jesus, that he died so that I would not have to, and I place my trust in him, right? This is the cornerstone of Christianity. The cornerstone of Christianity is the grace of God and the forgiveness, and the love of God. And this morning, as we transition to the communion table, that represents, symbolizes, in physical form, the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we do so coming to the communion table, asking God to do a work in our hearts to soften and humble us so that we can see our need for him. So that we can see our need for him. How do we fix our hearts? We can't. But God offers it of free grace. As we go to the communion table, I have one section of scripture I want to read over you. If you can turn there, if you would want to, it's in Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two. I'll tell you the, tell you the page number here in a second. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10. It's on page 947. Ephesians chapter two. And I want this passage of scripture to be I'm going to read it and I'm going to pray for us. And I want you to meditate on it this morning as we go to the table and as we celebrate the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, who died so that we might not have to. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. This morning, as we go to the communion table, we do so as people who believe that God has done everything that we need for us, as people of faith 
who come before the table in faith to say, God, I believe. Help me to follow and help me to love as you loved because you have loved me first, I can love others. If when we were unlovely, we were showed grace, not condemnation, then we must offer grace, not condemnation to others. The communion table is a place where we, mem- we remember what God has done through us through Jesus and where we are nourished, empowered, and reminded to do the same for others. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, this morning as we go to the communion table, change our hearts through these symbols that represent your broken body and shed blood and do a work in our lives so that we might love others the way you have loved us, so that we might see in humility our need for you and that the power of hate, anger, and jealousy would be broken in our lives. We believe this is only possible through your Son and the empowerment of the Spirit, and so we ask for it now, and we ask that you would use these symbols to make that a reality in our life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. At this time, I invite you forward to receive the elements, to return to your seat, and in a moment, I will lead us in partaking together. At this time, please come. to you.
this is Christ's body, which is broken for you. And this is Christ's blood, which is shed for you. Would you please stand with me as we're dismissed this morning? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? I'm going to pray for us a closing prayer of empowerment and challenge to live in the Jesus-centered life. Hear it again. Now, to God Almighty, whose plans for us do not end in death, to our Lord Jesus Christ, who entered into our world so that we might enter into his, to the Holy Spirit, who works constantly on our behalf, be all of our love and all of our praise until we meet God face to face. Amen. It's a privilege to share this uh, this morning with you. I hope you enjoy the weather. Have a good day.